an introduction to the rubaiyat of omar khayyam by omar khayyam translated by mrs h m cadell this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org recording by amy graymore the rubaiyat of omar khayyam by omar khayyam translated by jesse e cadell dedication to una o spring of work o source of power to be each line each thought i dedicate to thee each time i fail the failure is mine own but each success a jewel in thy throne jesse e cadell introduction jesse e cadell remarkable as the only woman whose name has hitherto been connected with that of the astronomer poet of persia was born in london on august twenty third eighteen forty four her maiden name was nash her father a city merchant left her an orphan at an early age her mother's second marriage to general liptrop took jessie to india in eighteen fifty nine in eighteen sixty at the age of sixteen jessie nash became the wife of henry mowbray cadell third son of john cadell of Trianent, east lothian at the time of his marriage a captain in the bengal artillery who in eighteen sixty seven left her a widow with two boys john now a captain in the royal artillery and arthur the cadells had returned to england in eighteen sixty four and lived principally in the south of france and algeria until captain cadell's death mrs cadell then took up her residence in edinburgh much influenced no doubt by her affection for her mother-in-law of whom after her death in eighteen eighty three she wrote to the present editor the day after i was at the museum i was summoned away to edinburgh by my mother-in-law's illness she died on sunday it has been a great loss for she had been a very great deal to me in her house a second home few of mrs cadell's letters are without traces of her devotion to her children but the care of their education could not engross the energies of her active mind she had studied persian to a slight extent in india mainly to relieve the tedium of a military station, and with no view to linguistic research. Fascinated by the gorgeous charm of India, she had conceived the idea of writing its history. She found that a knowledge of Persian would be indispensable, and actively resumed her studies soon after her settlement in Edinburgh. Persian poetry, however, is generally more attractive than Persian prose, and affords an easier introduction to the language. Mrs. Cadell's attention was thus gradually diverted from the more ambitious undertaking which would indeed have greatly overtaxed her fragile constitution. Mrs. Cadell's decision to make Persian poetry her principal study was probably formed about the time of her removal to London in 1873, and would be greatly encouraged by the facility of access to Persian manuscripts. Mutual friends introduced the writer of this memoir to her acquaintance in 1877 or 1878, and he shortly afterwards heard of the version of Omar Khayyam, which her studies in the interval had enabled her to commence. The essay on the true Omar Khayyam, if it did not already exist, must have been written soon afterwards. For this the present writer was so fortunate as to procure admission into Fraser's magazine, where it appeared in May 1879. This little service doubtless promoted a friendship, which would as certainly have existed without it, 
and the rather as Mrs. Cadell was already endeared to some of the writer's best friends. It may indeed be said of Jessie Cadell that to know her was to value her, though her personal as well as her mental graces would have made her an ornament to any society the qualities which won her favour were far from merely ornamental it would be difficult to find a more thoroughly sterling character one whose gifts and accomplishments were more conscientiously and systematically made auxiliary to serious ends it would also have been difficult to find one whose friends were more unanimous in their judgment respecting her she seemed to impress every one alike this unanimity, though it would have been impossible except in the case of a person of great singleness and straightforwardness of character, was no doubt largely due to the general and inevitable perception of the dominant fact in Mrs. Cadell's life, the struggle against dissolution, which by this time coloured her entire existence, and around which all minor circumstances had come to group themselves. From 1879 onwards, Mrs. Cadell's life was a struggle for existence, pursued at the expense of the two dearest interests which made existence precious to her. She would fain have lived wholly for her children and her work. It was now but by fits and snatches that she could devote herself to either. She moved from place to place, seeking and occasionally finding alleviation and hope, then thrown back, then again rallying, gradually parting with her strength, but with spirit unconquerable to the end. Her correspondence contains much that is melancholy as a bare statement of fact, never a word of regret or repining. The struggle with pain and debility seemed to brace her energies, and to become in some measure a substitute for the work to which, so long as health allowed, she had dedicated her life. So have I not unmoved in mind seen birds of tempest loving kind thus beating up against the wind. She found from time to time refuge at Florence, where she enjoyed the friendship of Miss Violet Paget, and at Siena, where she fell in a measure under the spell of the genius loci, St. Catherine, in whom she recognized a kindred spirit to her Persians. No enthusiast in our time, she wrote, could have been so sensible. She meditated a translation of St. Catherine's most remarkable utterances, but broken health forbade. Nor did she forget Omar, and always looked forward to the production of the standard edition in which the genuine quatrains were to be sifted, from the spurious and the true Omar discriminated from Fitzgerald's brilliant but misleading paraphrase. She writes from Catanabia, May twenty seventh, 1881. So far I have not been able to do any steady work, but I have looked into the libraries of the towns I had passed to ask for Kayam. I only found trace of him in one place, Venice, where they looked me in the face, from a glass case, two well-known quatrains of Omar. The librarian was out. I found out when he was to be back, and walked about Venice in a considerable state of excitement for a couple of hours. I had forgotten that I cared so much about it all, until there seemed a chance of a new manuscript. The librarian was very kind, and I got it out at last, but it proved to be a disappointment. It was only a fragment— two dozen quatrains instead of two or three hundred. It was carefully catalogued as the Yusuf and Zalika of Nuzami. Altogether Italy seems poor in Persian, but it is rich in so much else that one has no right to grumble. Up to the beginning of 1884 Mrs. Cadell's spirit had remained unabated, and there is no indication of her admitting the hopelessness of her recovery even to herself, 
nor indeed is any symptom of despondency to be found in her communications with the present writer. But there are tokens that she was beginning to find the struggle too severe. This does not appear to have been occasioned by aggravation of suffering, so much as by increasing weakness. The contest with sickness had kept her in a kind of artificial health. Her sword had been her staff, and she drooped when it was withdrawn. In the last letter which the writer received from her, dated Florence, April 26, 1884, she says, after speaking of a slight degree of improvement which she had experienced after reaching the city, Still it is a very scanty measure of health, and I am so wretchedly weak as to find that positive suffering. She adds, I shall stay here, I suppose, until I am well enough to move myself. That until never became a now. She died at Florence on July 17, 1884, and was interred in the cemetery which holds the remains of Mrs. Browning and Landor and Theodore Parker and so many other gifted men and women of English race. The true Omar Khayyam, published in Fraser in May 1879, is the sole contribution towards her chosen task, which Mrs. Cadell was enabled to get in print during her lifetime. It falls mainly into two sections, criticism of Fitzgerald as a translator and of Omar as a thinker, both points of which are combined in the following passage. As very beautiful English verse, no one can doubt that Mr. Fitzgerald's Khayyam fully deserves its fame. As a translation, we are less satisfied with it. While acknowledging that the translator has been, on the whole, successful in catching the sound of the Persian lines, wonderfully so in the setting thoughts and phrases from the Persian in his English verses, we contend that this is hardly enough to satisfy us in the translation of a set of epigrams. It is a poem on Omar, rather than a translation of his work, and its very faults have, to English readers, taken nothing from its charm and added much to its popularity. Its inexactness has allowed the infusion of a modern element, which we believe to exist in the Persian only in the sense in which the deepest questions of modern life are of all time. Its occasional obscurity, too, has rather helped than hindered the impression of the whole. People expect obscurity in a Persian writer of the twelfth century, even like it as it leaves dark corners which the mind can light up any way it pleases, and regard what it finds there as one of the peculiar beauties of Eastern thought. These parts have less attraction for those who, knowing Khayyam in the original, have learned to value him for himself. This is the natural point of view of the Persian scholar versus the amateur. It is nevertheless somewhat unjust to Fitzgerald, who never placed himself in the Persian scholar's position. He never professed to translate Omar, only to paraphrase him, and his version must be regarded as a variation upon a given theme, not a transcript of it. Many quatrains, he says himself, are mashed together. Nevertheless, while indulging in liberty, he kept on the right side of license. He altered and added, says Professor Cowell, but never invented an entire tetra-stitch of his own. And Mr. Heron Allen finds that many of his most daring Interpolations are but transplantations from the Marti Atari of another Persian poet, Farid Uddin Attar. While nevertheless we are far from condemning Fitzgerald, it is a matter of much interest to rightly appreciate the Persian semblance of the figure which his genius has brought in half-European costume upon the theatre of modern literature. Few probably have been so well qualified 
as Mrs. Cadell for this work of restoration. Deeply sympathetic with independent thought in every form, she possessed a clear logical understanding, and her first inquiry under all circumstances was, What is true? Her verdict upon Khayyam as a thinker is as follows. He mocks, questions, laments, enjoys, is a person of varying moods, strong feelings, and remarkable boldness. But he has some sort of belief at the bottom of it all. He has no doubt about his enjoyment of the pleasant things around him while they last. He can chafe against the sorrows of life and its inevitable end, the folly of the hypocrites and the cruelty of fate but he never doubts the existence of an oppressor, or questions the reality of sorrow any more than that of death. It would seem that with all his boldness he never succeeded in convincing himself that he was in the right, and that his attitude of mind towards God, the law, and moral obligation was that of rebellion, not negation. In many respects, Khayyam contradicts preconceived notions of oriental character. Though fond of pleasure, he was not attracted by a sensual paradise. He was not indifferent to death. He was not passive under the hand of fate, or at all remarkable for resignation. He is a discovery, a light on the old eastern world in its reality, which proves, as do most realities, different from what suppositions and theories would make them. On the question how far the constant praises of wine and incitement to conviviality in Omar's verse is to be understood literally, Mrs. Cadell is very illuminating. Without agreeing with those who look on it all as simply a figure for divine love, the wine of the love of God, we come to regard it as representing more than mere sensual pleasure. We must remember that drinking had in the East at that time no vulgar associations. Wine parties were common in the houses of the great men and in the courts of the princes. These wine parties were, in fact, the nurseries of all the intellectual life of the time which was unconnected with religion, and did much to counteract the dullness of orthodox Mohammedan life. So little growth to be got in what was lawful, it was small wonder that stirring minds turned from it, and as including so much else that they valued, we find them idolizing the pleasure which seemed so fertile as a metaphor for the rest. This we are much inclined to believe is the real explanation of Omar's apparent attitude towards the wine-cup. A man of his intellectual superiority an astronomer, too, whose pursuits especially required sobriety and method, cannot have been the mere Epicurean, not in the sense of Epicurus, for which he might be taken. I swear I drink not my poor thirst to slake, he says in one place. Wine stands to him as, in Mrs. Cadell's words, a metaphor for the rest, an abbreviated symbol for all the excellent things from which Mohammedan bigotry debarred the free and genial soul. He occupies himself, says Mrs. Cadell, with the problems which, dealt with unsatisfactorily to Persian minds by Mohammedan theology, gave rise to the mysticism of Attar, Jalal ad-Din Rumi, and Saadi. This remark on the unsuitableness of Mohammedan theology to the Persian mind opens up a deep question. How far has Persia assimilated Islam? Accustomed to comprehend Arabs, Turks and Persians under the general denomination of Orientals, we are liable to forget that there is no community of race among them. The Mohammedan religion was imposed by a Semitic people upon an Aryan one, without condescension to the subtleties of controversy, but by dint of apostolic blows and knocks. 
an authentic history of the conversion of persia to islam would be a very curious chapter in human history the process was far from instantaneous for two centuries after the overthrow of the sasanian monarchy we find the followers of the two religions holding public disputations and about the same time was compiled the dinkard an extensive digest of zoroastrian theology and law the reader of the fisherman and the genie will remember that a fourth of the metamorphosed inhabitants of the enchanted lake city are fire worshippers and the story of amgiad and assad shows the strength of the old religion and the embittered feeling between its votaries and the followers of islam we do not suggest that omar was secretly a zoroastrian but the doctrine of heredity teaches that repugnance to mohammedanism was not likely to be extinct in him and that in this respect he probably shared the sufi frame of mind little of a sufi as he may have been himself now one of the points upon which the two religions came most markedly into collision was the lawfulness of wine prescribed by one and lauded by the other as one of the deity's chief gifts to man the anonymous author of the dina e Maynog karad opinions of the spirit a persian book probably written shortly before the downfall of the empire says of the moderate use of wine it causes recollection of things forgotten and goodness takes place in the mind it likewise increases the sight of the eye the hearing of the ear and the speaking of the tongue and work which it is necessary to do and to expedite becomes more progressive he also sleeps pleasantly in the sleeping place and rises light and on account of these contingencies good repute for the body righteousness for the soul and also the approbation of the good come upon him the writer it is true proceeds to enumerate the ill effects of the misuse of wine but it never occurs to him that its use should be forbidden on that account without therefore at all disputing omar's partiality for the juice of the grape in its most material sense we think it may also have stood to him as an emblem of religious and philosophical freedom much as shelley makes it an emblem of love one of the most important inquiries that can be instituted respecting omar relates to the genuineness of his text the essence and quintessence of his poetry are doubtless to be found in the hundred and ten quatrains translated by fitzgerald but fitzgerald has so frequently fused several stanzas into one that it is difficult to determine precisely how many he admitted into his canon the manuscripts vary greatly in the number of quatrains recognized as omar's of the two used by fitzgerald the oxford manuscript contains only a hundred and fifty-eight the calcutta swelled he says by all kinds of repetition and corruption has five hundred and sixteen a cambridge manuscript has no fewer than eight hundred and one but is very modern the calcutta printed edition of eighteen thirty six has four hundred and ninety two monsieur nicholas's translation four hundred and sixty four bodenstedt's four hundred and sixty seven shack's three hundred and thirty six winfield's five hundred mrs cadell found no less than one thousand and forty quatrains attributed to omar of which not more than from two hundred and fifty to three hundred were accepted by her as authentic her own version includes one hundred and fifty the genuineness of a few of which may appear questionable mr garner deemed the spirit of omar sufficiently represented by the one hundred and fifty two which he selected from the mass 
and most readers will probably agree with him. From a critical point of view, nevertheless, it is important to obtain as authentic a text of Omar as possible, and if his diction differs so greatly as has been represented, from the poets who succeeded him. This ought not to be a matter of very great difficulty as regards the question of genuineness. The frequent variations of text would be less easy to adjust, unless some manuscript should be found considerably nearer to Omar's time than any at present known. Mrs. Cadell was not long in obtaining recognition for her work in the highest quarter. It came under the notice of Bodenstead, then engaged in the preparation of his translation of the Rubaiyat, published in 1881. Totally unacquainted with the identity, and entirely unsuspicious of the sex of the translator, he wrote in his introduction, An Orientalist, whose name is unknown to me, but who, in a very searching review of Fitzgerald's version, signed J.E.C., reveals himself as one thoroughly acquainted with Omar, hits the mark in rejecting all one-sided interpretations of the poet, and proving that a deeply religious spirit breathes from his finest strophes, which may be recognized even when he is attacking Islam, a creed repugnant to his nature, with the sharpest weapons of reason. This is not exactly the view of Mrs. Cadell, who, while vindicating Omar from the charge of sheer agnosticism, represents him as a rebel against precepts, and whose supernatural sanction he, nevertheless, does not wholly disbelieve. Both this view and Bodenstedt's, however, occupy a middle position between the two, one-sided interpretations, of which Bodenstedt complains, the Epicureanism of Fitzgerald and the Sufism of Monsieur Nicholas. They admit of reconciliation if we place ourselves at the point of view which both Bodenstedt and Mrs. Cadell all but assume, and regard Omar as an example of an Aryan intellect in revolt against an uncongenial Semitic theology, which nevertheless the power of tradition and early association disables him from discarding as decidedly as he would wish. The sanity of both critics has affected much for the vindication of their author. Bodenstedt justly points out the impossibility of finding any record of coherent mental development in a series of quatrains arranged by the scribes according to the alphabetical order of the first lines. Mrs. Cadell shows what slight warrant some of Fitzgerald's audacities derive from the original Persian. Had she known Fitzgerald more intimately, she might have also pointed out how Omar's verse had come as a torch to enkindle thoughts long latent in his own mind. What marvel if, where strewed the fuel lay, around the heart the sudden flame upwent? Mrs. Cadell left not only a metrical, but also a prose version of her hundred and fifty quatrains, which evidently preceded the poetical rendering. Indeed, as the few translations of her own given in the true Omar are invariably in prose, and agree exactly with the prose manuscript, it may be conjectured that the metrical translation was not then in existence. The prose, at all events, is the basis of the verse, and the comparison of the two is interesting as showing what labor the latter cost her. In a few instances, where the exigencies of meter have been too hard for her, and she has evidently failed to satisfy herself, recourse has been had to the prose for an amended version. Substantially, however, the work is given to the world as she left it. She also left behind her a transcript of the Persian text of the hundred and fifty quatrains, with marginal notes, indicating in which of fourteen manuscripts which she consulted, indicated by letters of the alphabet, any particular one is found. 
This is frequently interesting and suggestive. There appears, for example, but one instance of a quatrain occurring in one manuscript only, but many of its being confined to two or three. When this is the case, A, B, and D are almost certain to be among the manuscripts containing it. A quatrain contained in A is almost certain to be included in B also, but B has many not found in A. The quatrains cited from M and N are so few that Mrs. Cadell probably had not herself collated these manuscripts. It is not certain whether she intended to have published the Persian text, but it is most probable that she did, and that she would have added particulars respecting the manuscripts, and an endeavor to determine their various degrees of authority. She would also, no doubt, have appended explanatory notes, which have been deemed superfluous at the present advanced period of Kayamite study. As a translator, Mrs. Cadell's work is entitled to the indulgence that may be justly claimed by a labor of love. Deciding that her author could not be effectively rendered in prose, she courageously essayed a verse translation, although her experiences of the poetic art must have been the slenderest. So far, indeed, as known to the present writer, the noble quatrain of her own, prefixed to her rendering, is her sole original essay in metrical composition. Under the circumstances, her success must be considered remarkable. She wants neither dignity, tenderness, nor epigrammatic brevity. Her defects are mainly technical, and some, such as the frequent imperfect rhymes, would have disappeared under the stricter revision, which her broken health never allowed her to carry through. In one respect, she is manifestly at a disadvantage not only in comparison with Fitzgerald, but with Mr. Winfield, Mr. Garner, and Mr. Heron Allen, her failure to reproduce the precise form of the original, a form particularly adapted for sententious poetry. She was, nevertheless, well advised in declining to undertake what at this early stage of her poetical discipline would have been entirely beyond her power. But it may be regretted that she did not discard rhyme altogether in favor of an easy metrical prose. The necessity for finding rhymes evidently cramped her terribly. Her strong point is the sympathy with Omar which renders her more of a Persian than any of her competitors. We seem nearer to Omar in her verse than elsewhere. Fitzgerald, as she herself remarks, has rather written a poem upon Omar than translated him, and the other translators, though faithful to the mere wording of their original, behold this through a medium of nineteenth-century thought. Jessie Cadell alone expresses herself as Omar might have done had he returned to earth to give his poem to England. As Fitzgerald's translation will survive to the latest age of English literature as a proof of the supreme importance of grand form, so may hers as an instance of the power of love and zeal to neutralize serious technical defects. Mrs. Cadell was the authoress of two novels, Ida Craven, 1876, and Worthy, published posthumously in 1895. The former is not only a clever but a highly interesting and individual book, giving a lively picture of life on the Indian frontier, noble and bracing in its moral tone, and a mirror of the animating personality of the authoress. The Comparative Languor of Worthy, a story of the Franco-German War, with some scenes in Corsica, is due to the depression of ill-health. Both stories reproduce the scenery and embody the experience of the authoress's life, 
Invention was not a strong point with Mrs. Cadell. They tell more of her, however, than she could convey as the interpreter of the thoughts of another. If hardly more than might have been inferred from her own motto and confession of faith, the dedicatory quatrain in the front of her translation, by which, had she written nothing else, she would have deserved to live. Richard Garnett, May 23, 1899 End of the Introduction to the Rubiette of Omar Khayyam by Omar Khayyam Translated by Jesse E. Cadell